Hello, and welcome to the Crossroads Podcast, the show where Mark Meckler and Rita Peters discuss hot-button issues from a biblical perspective, helping to equip other Christians to bring light to a darkened culture. Rita is the Senior Vice President of Legislative Affairs, and Mark serves as the CEO and co-founder for Convention of States Action. Find out more by visiting conventionofstates.com slash pod. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. I'm your host, Rita Peters, and Mark Meckler is on assignment again today. He is actually headed in to the Texas legislature as we speak. But once again, I have a great guest with me. Our program today is all about parental rights, and I am privileged, actually, to know one of the truly great heroes of parental rights in the entire country. I'm actually privileged to work with him because he does serve now as a senior advisor for Convention of States. His name is Michael Ferris. Mike, welcome to the program. Well, Rita, it is a terrific uh, privilege to be with you uh, in this format as usual. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking with you and your, your guests. Great. So to give you a little bit of background about Mike, Mike was the founding president of both the Homeschool Legal Defense Association and Patrick Henry College in Virginia. He has served as lead counsel in the United States Supreme Court, eight federal circuit courts, and the appellate courts of 13 states. Mike Ferris is largely known for his work in constitutional appellate litigation, religious freedom, and homeschool advocacy. He is a co-founder, as I mentioned, of the Convention of States movement. After founding Convention of States, he took a hiatus and went to work defending religious freedom, human life, and the family as the president, CEO, and general counsel of Alliance Defending Freedom, which is the world's premier defender of religious liberty. Following five years of work with ADF, Mike has now returned to Convention of States to help push this Article 5 solution over the finish line. And I want to make sure to add that Mike and his lovely wife, Vicki, have 10 children and many grandchildren. Mike, I have to start by saying I have no idea how you have done all of these things in your life, which, you know, you're in your prime and you've already done all of these things. How do you fit it all in? What is your secret? Well, um, it's been I've I've been at this for well over 40 years. And so you've just condensed to 40 plus years of of work. Uh, And so, you know, it sounds a lot when you say it in two two minutes or three minutes, but, you know, that, that was, that was 43, 43 years of work. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, a lot can happen in 43 years, but, but um, the Lord's been faithful. I've, um, you know, enjoyed it. And standing for parents, particularly in education has been a major component of my career and have argued many, many cases in that zone. Yeah. Well, you are certainly an expert, some would say the country's leading expert in this topic. Today's program is all about just that parental rights. So Mike, why don't you start by just laying some groundwork for us? Let's go really basic, first of all. What is the source of our rights as parents? Well, um, of course, I believe that our our rights are God-given and 
um, you know, the Declaration of Independence says we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Uh, among these is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No. And then it says to protect these rights, governments are instituted among men. So government only protects rights. It doesn't really create them. Um, and so God, as the Declaration said, created the rights and gave children to parents, gave with with the uh, gift of responsibility comes the authority to make decisions for your, ch your children. That's really what parental rights means, is the ability to make decisions for your children rather than the government making decisions for your children. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, um, you know, I look to that, but it, you know, where is that protected in the Constitution? And, and um, the Supreme Court, starting in the 1920s, uh, said that the protection was found in the term liberty in the 14th Amendment. No person shall be denied liberty without due process of law. And the question is, what liberties are protected? And uh, the short answer is, those things that are deeply rooted and grounded in our history and tradition and law are protected. And the only thing that I know of that is not specifically listed in the Bill of Rights that fits that criteria is the right of parents to direct the upbringing of their children. And that's you know, that's deeply rooted in our history. And uh, there there are questions about the right methodology of enforcing parental rights and our view on, on parental rights. But there is no doubt of the existence of parental rights. Um, and so uh, no one, no matter what side you are on um, the various kind of arcane legal debate, takes the position that if the government wants to just complete take away your parental rights, they don't have to do anything at all. No, they have to, uh, the right of parents says that if they're going to remove that, there has to be evidence of basically of abuse or neglect and, and, and before you can remove a child from their parents. And anything short of that, any element of the parental custody is subject to the same rule of taking them away entirely. So you, th there should be proof of some form of harm, abuse, neglect, abandonment um, being the traditional ones, some form of harm before the government can interfere with our rights as parents to make decisions for our kids. Yeah. Okay, so that's really, really helpful. A lot of information there. And I want to stay on this point for just a minute about the 14th Amendment, because we know, Mike, wow. that the courts have really stretched the 14th Amendment beyond recognition. And it might be troubling to some people to see, well, you know, parental rights isn't mentioned in the in the Constitution. It's not mentioned in the 14th Amendment. So why does the 14th Amendment protect parental rights, but not protect, say, the right to have an abortion, which some people and courts would say that it does. So can you just go a little bit deeper? What's the difference between those two things in this context? Well, the, the difference is history and tradition and law. And, and if you look at the, the, uh, the 14th Amendment was adopted in 1868. There's a parallel provision for federal actions. The Due Process Clause was adopted in the Fifth Amendment in 1791. So if you look at either of those two dates and ask yourself, was the right of a parent to direct the upbringing of their children uh, protected in either 1868 or or in um, 1791? And the answer is yes. Yes. And then if you ask the question, was the right to an abortion protected in those times? The answer is no. 
uh, abortions were not protected in either of those cases. And so the modern um, efforts to stretch the due process clause stretches it out of its historical context. And, and, and in, in fairness, what it's saying is um, we're protecting the liberties that exist. And so the Ninth Amendment, I think, gives clarity. It says just because we don't list every right, and I'm paraphrasing the Ninth Amendment, doesn't mean we're taking them away. But it, it's talking about pre-existing, recognized, God-given rights. And um, parental rights fits that bill. Abortion rights do not fit that bill. Um, yeah. Moreover, I contend that parental rights if you really want to get out down to the details, there's a debate between so-called substantive due process and procedural due process. Parental rights, I think, correctly fall into the category of procedural due process. In fact, I'm writing a law review article on that right now. Um, procedural due process means you can't take something away without proving a certain set of facts ahead of time. And so uh, the example I used a, a minute or two ago if, if the government wants to take away your custody entirely, everybody would recognize that that is a procedural due process question. You can't mm -hmm. take my child away without giving me a fair trial. Well, if that's, if that's the case, then the question is, what's the procedure required to take away part of my custodial right? So mm -hmm. the ability to make medical decisions for your child is part of your custodial right. I contend the same procedures required take away a part of your parental rights as it is to take away all of your parental rights. And once procedural due process, I think it should be a procedural due process on the other side. And so no one, there's no school of thought, liberal or conservative in constitutional law, that, that questions procedural due process. Everybody agrees that that's right. And I think parental rights fall into that category. I see. Okay, so take us back to the days when you had to fight the good fight for the rights of parents to homeschool their children. What did you have to do to secure that right in all 50 states? And what was that fight really about, given the longstanding history of parental rights? Well, uh, the uh, what was really about from, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the, the other side's perspective which started with the first case I ever worked on, which was in Northern California. And the superintendent uh, noted to, in his dealings with me uh, on behalf of this family, that this family had a number of kids, I think it was four or five kids at the time. And, and he said, he told me about the amount of money that he was losing from the state because this family was homeschooling and he wasn't about to let that money go. So money is the number one issue for the public schools. They want the kids back in the schools so they can get the money. Uh, mm -hmm. The second power and control of philosophy. Uh, uh, that's the teachers unions uh, deal. They, they, they want control and they want to control and shape the worldview of every child in the country. Um, and so when you blend money, power and philosophy together, that's the motivation on the other side. Um, mm -hmm. What it takes to win, um, most judges are reasonably fair-minded. Uh, that I, I've dealt with, but where you had to start, you couldn't start with legal theory, you couldn't start with anything else. They wanted to know that the kids were okay, um, that that fundamentally what was happening with these children were, was okay. And so we would start by demonstrating that they're doing doing well academically. Um, and even though 
that would either not be relevant until the government proves some things or will only be relevant as, as kind of a rebuttal of a sort. But nonetheless, I knew out of the gate, judges want to know that these kids are okay. And once you, you, you help them to know that the kids are okay, then they can calm down and now listen to the legal argument appropriately. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and, and ultimately, the reason that homeschooling was successful in winning political uh, protections um, of our right in all 50 states in, in some form or another was people in law at large, society at large, state legislators, people got to know homeschool families and they look at the kids and go, these are good kids. They're doing fine. And so the ability to say that in, in terms of studies and so on was important, but the ability to look at the individual family and say that these kids are okay. You know, in very, very, very rare circumstances, we found some families that weren't doing as good a job as they should. And we either did um, remedial action to help them improve and you know make, help make changes, or else we encouraged them to stop homeschooling and put their kids someplace else because uh, we didn't want the right to homeschooling blow up because somebody was doing a bad job. Absolutely. You know, as I think about this fundamentally, it seems that any attempt by a state government or any other government to keep parents from being able to homeschool their children really turns the proper role of government on its head. Because at the beginning of our interview, you talked about the Declaration of Independence, which describes, you know, the whole point of government is to protect the rights of the citizens. So when government tries to interfere with that right, isn't it sort of turning the whole situation upside down? It it is, but let me answer uh, uh, an argument that would arise from the other side. They would say, no, what about the child's right? Mm -hmm. And um, I like to point out that they're misunderstanding the framework. Children have needs, legitimate, legally protected need. They need education. They need food. They need clothing. They need shelter. They need medical care. Those are legitimate, legally protectable needs. And the question is, who supplies those needs? Does the Mm -hmm. government supply those needs or does the parent supply those needs? In in those contexts, if if you relabel those things right, then it becomes government-centric. And so, you know, I think that we all want children to be able to have these things, but to call them rights, put the government in charge. We call them legitimate needs, puts the family back in charge. Now, what happens when the parents don't deliver what the child needs? Well, the answer is that's child abuse or child neglect, and the government can intervene when there's a failure. So there's 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 responsibility and there's authority. That that really is the shorthand for rights. The parents have the responsibility to take care of their kids in these areas, and they have the authority to make decisions in these areas. And that's what the rights are all about. It, it's really about protecting their authority to make decisions for their children. Will my child get this kind of medical care, or will they get a different kind of medical care? Mm-hmm. Who has the authority to make that decision? And so um, I, I, I think that, you know, really dividing it up correctly but yes, you're, you're, you're correct. It, it does turn it on its head. We are not in a country where the government is presumed to be right and the people are presumed to, to need the permission of the government to do anything. We're in a country where the government must have 
a very clear grant of authority before it can intervene in our decision making and in our freedom. Yeah, you know, Mike, that was so helpful. I love the way you just laid that out and talking about the importance of distinguishing between a right and a need and labeling something correctly has great consequence. And it's not just in the area of parental rights, but, you know, I think about all the ways our culture, our society today mislabels things. You know, people talk about the universal human right to health care. Well, you know, then what are the implications of that? People have a need for health care, but whose responsibility is it to provide that? So I think this labeling issue is so important and it really does get us into trouble as a society when we lump something into a wrong category, when the category has legal significance and legal consequence. Would you agree this is something we get wrong all the time and it is disastrous? Well, we're moving more in the wrong direction in that right area. The, the, uh, uh, I, I, I was bored one day and got an LLM in public international law from the University of London. And, uh, in your uh, spare time. Spare time, right. So um, the, um, in, in international human rights law, there, there's, there's positive rights and there's negative rights. And actually, um, I don't really like those connotations, but that's, that's how it's, it's labeled. Um, positive rights are the things the government must do for you. And negative rights are the things the government cannot do to you. And so all of the rights that are in the Bill of Rights would be considered negative rights. The government can't take away your freedom of speech. The government can't take your freedom without giving you a fair trial and so on. So American rights are negative rights in, in this formulation. The United States has never adopted a treaty that is a positive rights centric treaty. And so, uh, and I've helped lead the defeat of, of some of those treaties, the rights of the child, you know, uh, UN Convention on the Rights of the Child being the lead example of that, is that it was creating positive rights. Kids get from the government the right to do this, the right to do that, and the other, rather, and supplanting the needs-based theory that our law is built upon. And so I, I think it's really important to under, understand that our conception of rights is the government can't come into these zones. It, it's areas the government cannot do. And the, to use the things that government must do is by its nature socialism. Uh, and, and our country has never adopted a legal framework that endorses socialism in, in terms of a human rights treaty. Now, we're doing socialism in, you know, pale pastel colors in, mm -hmm. in many respects, both at the federal level and at the state levels. And in some states, it's not pale pastel, it's, you know, awful vivid colors of, you know, nonsense. But, but nonetheless, that's the difference. A freedom-loving country does not uh, go that direction, and, and they're incompatible. Freedom and socialism are incompatible. Positive rights and freedom are incompatible. Um, mm. And so we, we need to protect the, the theory of what the government can't do to me. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thanks to you and Homeschool Legal Defense Association and a lot of activist parents many years ago, we now have, you know, recognized the right of parents to homeschool their children without undue interference of the state. So let's fast forward to today. 
what do you see today as some of the biggest threats to parental rights? Well, uh, what public schools are doing right now is uh, is this the most dangerous to me is in the area of you know, trying to secretly transition children from their normal orientation and, and into being uh, you know transgender and and, and or gay. Uh, and they're 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 doing and there's several school districts. ADF is litigating several cases where they tell the teachers, do not tell the parents what's going on. And the the school effectively is you know interfering in this area, not only interfering in parental rights, they're practicing medicine because gender dysphoria is a genuine, in, in some instances, is a genuine medical situation. Now, in other instances, it's just induced by society, and it's not a genuine, but it, it's a, you know, a social phenomenon, not really. And the schools are creating gender dysphoria, and then they're treating, they're pr pr pretending to be medical professionals by treating it against the parents, not, without the parents' knowledge or without the parents' consent. And that's you know, a, a huge clash that's happening in schools all across the country, and there's a lot of litigation going on, and it's incredibly dangerous. Um, you know, many cases, I mean, one I can think of right now, a girl was confused for a couple of weeks. She, you know, she was um, really, really upset by what the school was doing. Uh, they didn't tell her parents. When the parents found out, they pulled her away from that school, and within, you know, a very few days, the girl righted herself and she was back to her, her normal self and she is happy and everything. And, uh, the nonsense that they're telling uh, parents is, you know, it's better to have, you know, if you have a daughter who thinks that she wants to be a boy, they say it's better to have a, a, a living son than a dead daughter. The facts are, the, the medical facts are, they're far more likely to have a suicidal oriented daughter, uh, daughter who if they pursue the transgender direction, they're increasing their risk of suicide rather than the other way around. The science and the stats do not bear out their, their, their slogans in this area. And so parents are, if they listen to that nonsense, they're actually doing not only morally the wrong thing and long, long, um, long term the wrong thing, in the short term they're doing the wrong thing because they're, they're making it more likely that their children will have a suicidal ideation or something. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, we had um, Matt Sharp on the program recently from ADF, and he talked to us about some of the science behind this and statistics that show the great damage that's being done to these kids. And they are kids whose brains are not even fully developed yet. And so, Mike, you know, we often hear about these um, cases where schools are doing these things secretly and keeping the parents totally in the dark. And, you know, I, I feel outraged when I hear about this. And I just wonder where, how does this, how does this happen? How does the school get the idea that it has the authority to interfere in, in such a blatant way with the parent-child relationship? And what kind of legal leg, if any, does the school have to stand on? What's its argument for doing this? Well, they uh, contend that, you know, that they're protecting the child's rights, basically. Um, and, and the, uh, and, but, they don't have a legal authority to do that. They are not the child's guardian. Um, they're, 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 they're 
area of jurisdiction is limited and it's not in the area of providing medical care. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to provide medical care. It's one thing for them to even claim the right to teach about this, but they're going way beyond the teaching. They're, they're, they're grooming and, um, you know, making counseling decisions and other things without the parents' permission. I mean, historically, of course, they couldn't give a child an aspirin without the parents' permission in school, you know. And, you know, most of us think that's silly. You know, give the kid an aspirin. Why, why would we consent to that so readily? Aspirins aren't going to harm you. You know, the, the number of kids that will be harmed by taking an aspirin is so close to zero that we're willing to say, okay, let them. But no, we, we, we say no, can't give them an aspirin without the parents' permission. Just mm-hmm. to be sure. But this is way beyond giving a kid an aspirin. And, and so, uh, you know, they have political power behind them. They have um, secrecy behind them. They have a lot of money behind them, but they don't have any authority. They don't have any law. They don't have any, any um, science really behind them either. It, it, you know, they've got faux science. But when you, you know, pull it apart and, and put those doctors under examination, they can't stand up. Um, it, it, it just simply doesn't even meet the, the blush. This is not something that's truly fairly debatable. It's only yeah. debatable because of political correctness. Yeah. Mike, public education has become so ingrained in the American way of life. And I know that, you know, we're, we're starting to see more parents choose either homeschooling or private education. But for so many years, certainly for me growing up, public school was just the norm. And public schools today do so much more than, you know, teaching reading and writing and and arithmetic. They, you know, serve breakfast. They give lunches to kids during the summer. They do so many other things do you think that modern day American parents have become sort of complacent and just sort of look to the school system to care for their kids? And how has that, if you think that has happened, how does that play into what we see happening in the schools today? Well, it does. Parents, um, you know, if you ask somebody, do you want to um, prepare your kids breakfast or do you want the school to do it? Well, a lot of parents will say, well, let the school do it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it becomes the path of least resistance. If it's if it's available, if it's ostensibly free, then a lot of people are going to take it. Uh, same kind of philosophy that people think they have the right to free college. Um, you know, it's it's it, other people are paying for it, and we're taking away personal responsibility. And then the end, end of the day, we cheapen the whole thing. We uh, we we cheapen college if it's free to everybody. Um, and it, it, you know, it, all that's going to do is elevate the wrong kind of approach to college. And um, so, uh, and and the, and, the, and the parallels here as well is that the the parents really need, need to take personal responsibility because what the school will do for them is second best at you know maybe third or fourth best, frankly. But it, it's it's not going to be as good as what parents can do for their own child. And so parents standing up and taking responsibility is far more uh, uh, helpful, helpful for their child in the long run than just dumping their kids off on, on an institution. Sure. Well, Mike, we are almost out of time, but I have one more question for you. This program is Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. 
how important it is it for people of faith, not just parents, but the broader church community, how important is it for us to know what's going on in our public schools and to be engaged, you know, with, say, the school board and what's happening in our local schools? Well, what happens in our local schools is what's going to happen in our country for the decades to come. And so if we want to have a freedom-loving country, we have to have kids that are taught the principles of freedom. And they're being taught the opposite of the principles of freedom. They're being taught that America was an evil empire from the beginning, and it, it should be treated as such. And so I, I, I really um, encourage parents to get to know what's in your school. I live in infamous Loudoun County, Virginia, um, where you know our schools are a national news story on a regular basis. Our superintendent just got arrested uh, and um, uh, prosecuted. Uh, so it's, you know, so it's it's a mess here, but it's a mess everywhere. It's just not recognized. Um, yeah. and, and people need to get involved and find out what's going on. Um, daylight helps disinfect a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And the schools is one of those things. Absolutely. Mike, Thank you so much for being on the program. We've learned a lot today, covered a lot of ground. Thanks for spending your time with us. It's a pleasure, Rita. Well, that's it for Crossroads today. I would like to thank our generous sponsors at Blue Ridge Chimney Services, Blessings Christian Bookstore, Sunshine Ministries with Christian Radio, Wishing Well Florist and Travel Services, and our friends at New Beginnings Church and Garber's Church of the Brethren in Harrisonburg. Thank you all for listening and for your encouragement and your continued financial support. If you'd like to make a donation to help keep Crossroads on the air, you can do so by check to Crossroads at P.O. Box 881, Harrisonburg 22803. I'm Rita Peters, inviting you to join us again next week for another edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads podcast. To learn more about Convention of States, go to conventionofstates.com.